Thank you, Hillary. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Twin Cities Church. If you are visiting with us online or if you're visiting with us in person, welcome. I'm Lawrence Simmons. I'm one of the ministry team members here at the church, along with George and Deirdre Chance, and we get to do uh, the preaching and work together as a team on a lot of these, all, well, all of these series and sermons and, and work on the Word together. It's a, it's a joy to be able to come together and do this. These last several weeks, when we kind of think about what we have gone through as a church, and George gave that rundown in the welcome a little bit, we've really been talking heavily about the biblical call to the church, to live faithfully and to have that gospel witness in our lives of love and submission, of care to one another, and like we talked about last week, really of enacting the gospel, living out the gospel on a day-to-day level, letting that be our story. And now when we look at our culture now, and we look at our history as a church, we just look at the church, you can see very clearly that that living out of the narrative, that living out the gospel on a day-to-day basis looks different. We are inundated, right, by churches here in the Twin Cities, right, just in our day-to-day life. I mean, there is no shortage of the church in and around us, in our culture, and the, the church has had an incredible role in American culture and shaping America as a nation, and really all of us have been shaped by Christianity and by the church over its various forms and over time. And so we want to talk about today in particular just what some of that looks like and how that affects us as a church, because you can see that difference. We know these differences between the church. Many of us have experienced different churches personally, have come out of different traditions or models. We have friends in different traditions and models. And we have to be honest about how much of our expectations and hopes about the church are shaped by our expectations of the church, are shaped by our experience of of the church, and are shaped really by what we hope to see the church do. So if you look in your handout, it's a handout-heavy Sunday. And online, if you're watching online, there's a PDF attached of the handout. There's a chart. Not all of us love charts. Some of us love charts more than others. I think we all know who those people are who like their charts. But this chart, and I'll try to walk us through and explain it a little bit, the chart basically comes down to two fundamental questions, which we should really evaluate for ourselves as well. The first question that the chart tries to measure is how pessimistic or optimistic are you towards the possibility of cultural change? Does that make sense? Basically, it's that question of like, how optimistic are you that we as Christians, the church, is actually going to have a positive influence in our culture, change culture? Like that Christianity can actually do something with our culture. How, How pessimistic or optimistic are you about the church's role, Christianity's role, in affecting and changing the culture? Right? Changing that cultural narrative, making a difference in the world, however you want to kind of use those terminology, right? But basically that idea of like how hopeful are you or pessimistic are you in Christianity's role of changing or having a role in culture? The second fundamental question that this measures then, is however you answer that question, okay, you're going to be on one side of the chart if you are positive about making a difference in culture. If you don't think Christians can make a difference in culture, you're on the other side of the chart. But then the other thing is divided by, fundamentally, when you look at culture, do you think culture is redeemable and good, 
Or do you think that culture is fallen and beyond hope? That determines where you fall on the next level of the chart, right? Like, just as you look at our culture, right? And this is all of us, right? We, you look at the news, you look at the culture, you look at the neighborhoods you live in, we look at the city. Do you generally look at it as good and redeemable? You see God's grace in action. You think it's on an upward trajectory or there's the, it's at its essence good or are you more, you look at culture, you look at the world around you and you're far more pessimistic towards it and you look at it as fallen, godless, anti-Christian, away from God's, you know, there's a spectrum there. There's a spectrum of how, and the church historically has fallen into these different groups and has different models and expressions based off of how we view the culture that we're in. And Christians have looked at their cultures in different ways and then made their models based off of that. If I think that I can have a difference in culture, that the Christian Christian should make a difference in culture, that can make a difference in culture, can change culture, well, then all right, I'm going to do stuff that's going to go towards that. If I think that I can't, if I don't think that culture really can be changed, if I really don't think Christians are even called to make a big change in culture, well, then I'm going to go to this other model. I'm going to be doing this other tradition. I'm going to look differently. If I think that the culture is generally good and in alignment with Christian values, okay, I'm going to interact with culture in this way. If I think that culture is fundamentally flawed and fallen and beyond hope, well, then I'm going to, have, I'm going to operate this way. And so there's really four models you can kind of see there on the chart. And we want to walk through these four different models of Christianity in American culture. And this isn't just in America, this is just in really the history, but primarily when we look at the last several hundred years of Christians interacting with culture, and specifically, really narrowing that down to probably the last 80 years of Christianity and culture. There's a lot of stuff here. I'm going to have to really pull back. <laughs> it's dangerous. It feels like, you know, there's just so much information you can talk about. But if you're familiar with the Scopes trial in American history, the kind of evolutionary trial about evolution we taught in the school, in the classroom in the 1920s, ooh, after that, Christianity took a very different turn in American history and had to come up with some different models for how to interact within the world. And primarily, over the last 80 years, Christians have worked and operated in culture really in one of these four primary ways. The first group that we want to talk about is this transformationist model. I believe that's the lower right on your chart. This transformationist model. Now, these models, this would be the kind of neo-Calvinism, if some of you have come out of that, ties to Bethlehem Baptist, ties to, you know, very kind of reformed traditions have been very much in this kind of camp. This also political, has a very strong political wing to things. This would be the Christian right in the 80s really came out of this model. If you're familiar with like James Dobson, Chuck Colson, um, MacArthur, right? This is, this is their bread and butter. This idea, right, of Christian worldview is incredibly important. Like that's really foundational, that every Christian should have a worldview, should be clear on what they believe. That you should, your worldview, your Christianity should influence how you work, it should influence how you vote. It should influence how you do everything. Right? But you have a very clear understanding of a Christian worldview, and then that is going to lead you through your life, and you're going to work. Secular work is very good, very important. And in fact, 
this view would really celebrate Christians in key secular spots or in places, you know, like, oh, the Speaker of the House is a Christian, oh, that's so great. Or this CEO at this company is a Christian, that's great. We want Christians in Hollywood, we want Christians here, we want Christians there. Like, we want key Christians everywhere. We want Christians who have a Christian worldview to hold positions of influence, to be in positions of power, that's great. And the more and more we do that, the more our culture will shift towards Christianity. The more and more we have Christian producers, the more and more we have Christian singers, the more we have Christian politicians, then our culture will shift. That's that kind of model. And they believe, right, fundamentally, that the main problem of our world is this idea that you can't express your faith freely. The suppression of religious rights, the suppression of religious speech, really the the repression of religion is the biggest threat. So when the government wants to take away our abilities to freely express ourselves or say we're a Christian or I'm supposed to leave my Christianity at the door when I walk into a space, oh, that's, right, that's just wrong because I need, to have that, I need to have that informed worldview. This idea of a, Tim Keller talks about like the naked public square is the great threat that, you know, that we may lose the ability to be freely Christians in every aspect of my life, right? We need that kind of, those types of Christians in key places making a difference, turning the culture. Transformationist model. Many of us have been incredibly influenced by this model. Right? I mean, if we're really honest, I mean, especially that worldview types of things, I mean, that, that has won the day in Christian education, in Christian colleges, around the world. And, and there's a lot of good to this. There's a lot of great things that have come out of this model. But, right, and you can kind of anticipate there's going to be a lot of buts with all the models. But it also has its weaknesses, which we've also experienced and see in our culture today as well. One is that it's often seen as overly cognitive. It all rests on knowledge and having a very clear understanding of things. And you need to be able to clearly see things and read certain books and have a certain education. And that for many feel like lost in this type of a worldview, in this type, you know, and it's all worldview talk and philosophy, and well, I just want to live my life. It, it is a very cognitive level of operating Christianity. There also tends to be a great underappreciation of the local church in this model. All of the emphasis is really on you and your worldview living out in your sphere, in your work, where you are, and very little for the church to do. Right? Other than just strengthen individuals as you go out each week and work for Jesus and change your workplace or change your neighborhood, but very little on the role of the church in acting out in culture. There also tends to be historically a, a, a great amount of triumphalism. When Christians get to a position of power, we celebrate very quickly. We like our Christian celebrities in this model. We like our Christians in key spots, and we kind of take a lot of hope in that, we become a little self-righteous and tend to be overconfident in this model that we know what culture needs. Or as long as we have Christians making those decisions, they're going to know what the culture needs. Or they, a Christian will make a better decision than a non-Christian in this model. We tend to be a little overconfident in our abilities to transform the culture for good. And we often, in this model, neglect to see the dangers that come with power. There's a great desire for power in this model, to be in positions of influence, but then not as much of an honest conversation of the danger that comes from getting that power and what happens when we think we know what is best, but then, in fact, we did wrong and things have to be undone. 
The other model, the one right above this one, is this relevance model. So both of these, again, are on that side that really think Christians can do something in the world, should do something in the world. So this relevance model, so while the one, the transformationalist, has a generally pessimistic view towards the culture, which is why we need to change it and work to change it, put Christians in key places, the relevance model tends to be pretty optimistic about cultural trends. Doesn't really see too much wrong with culture, and in fact would say that there's a lot of good in culture. Instead of an emphasis on Christian worldview, these types of traditions really like to emphasize language like the common good, human flourishing, giving life, abundance, those types of, that type of language towards their seeking justice in the world, seeking to give life to the world, to help, to help people to flourish, the most good to the most people, the common good, to help and to relieve burdens. Seldom speak of worldview, but tend to be incredibly critical of the religious right and speak very badly of the political movement of the traditionalists and say that's a, that's a bad thing. They tend to seek to engage culture by reinventing church ministries to be more relevant to the needs and to the sensibilities of people around them, right within this model, where you say, right, if we're going to be a church in the city, then we need to look like the city. If we're going to reach people and help human flourishing, well, then we need to rethink our models and ways in which we do our things so that we can be most reflective and reach those people in such a way that we can partner with or help people who wouldn't understand Christianity, right? So not a lot of distinctive Christian worldview language, but much more about how do we, in fact, engage this world for the common good, for human flourishing. Tends to make little distinction, though, between how individuals should act in the world and how the institutional church should act in the world. Within the relevance model, there's a lot of blanket statements about the church should do this, Christians should do this. The church should engage more in calls to justice. The church should be doing something in our culture. The church needs to, so less on that individual side of the transformationist about you have a role, you have a calling. Here, much more on just the church has a calling. The church needs to do something and sometimes not enough emphasis or clarity around the role of an individual in these types of things. The problems with the, rev- the relevance model, and many of us, right, all of us, have come out of this model too, and have been greatly shaped with the relevance model. You know, we are ringed by megachurches throughout the Twin Cities that follow this model. There are liberal, uh, emergent churches in the Twin Cities that clearly follow this model. There's a lot of this idea of adapting oneself to the cultural sensibilities and trying to reach people for the common good and human flourishing. I mean, these are these are common ideas, and many of us have, have experiences in these churches, have come out of these churches, um, know this type of model. The problems with the relevance model is that they tend to become incredibly dated very quickly. When you think of even the seeker-sensitive services of megachurches and the heyday that they had in the 90s, now they've, it's become a joke in culture, those types of services. The mainline liberal Protestant church in America, which adopted this model in the 70s and the 80s, now right, can't keep their doors open anymore because it's become dated. Who would go to those church services? Who would do that? And that, that chasing after relevance, the chasing after to be culturally adaptable, 
right, you find yourself then adapting to the culture, but then the culture shifted again, and now you find yourself dated and obsolete. Another problem with the relevance model, which we've seen in all experience, right, is that culture tends to become more normative than scripture, where the cultural trends, whatever is culturally relevant at the moment, whatever is culturally pressing at the moment, or what feels like needs to be addressed, becomes the guiding normative narrative to follow versus the word of God, directing and guiding. Most of the energy, and this model puts a lot of energy around justice. It puts a lot of energy around doing things. But much and most of all that energy is around the doing and producing, and very little energy goes towards the teaching of the gospel, and even of seeking converts to Jesus Christ. The expansion of the kingdom by bringing people into transformational relationship with Jesus is often neglected. It's about seeking the common good and human flourishing and doing, and very little about teaching and transformation and discipleship. And in most of it, the distinctiveness of Christianity gets lost. You can't tell the difference in this model most times between the life lived by someone in this model as a Christian and the life lived by somebody who is not a Christian. If we flip over to the other side of the chart, so we have the transformationalist and the relevance, in that lower left corner, you have the counterculturalist model. Now, that counterculturalist model, right, again, it has a pretty pessimistic view of the church's influence in culture, has a pretty pessimistic view of culture in general. I mean, this is the view for the pessimists out there, which is many of us. <laughs> this is your camp if you are just a pessimist and you don't trust anybody or anything. Because where you really just say you do not see... God working through cultural movements outside of the church. The church is really the only thing where God is actively working in our culture. And this model calls the church actually to avoid concentrating on culture at all, but to rather, the call is for the church to be a counterculture, an alternate community, an alternate kingdom, an alternate city within the city, a different type of community than the one around us, this alternate way of life. This tradition is sharply critical of both conservative evangelical churches, but also critical of liberal mainline churches, and also critical of the megachurch model. There's critical of everybody in this model, in the countercultural model. The church, they would argue, right, needs to go outside of the camp, is kind of the language used, and identify with the poor and the marginalized, right? Like the in the countercultural movement, the church needs to not seek to be in central, powerful, elite circles. Right? Don't seek power. Don't seek influence. Don't seek those things. But rather, Christ is calling the church to go outside of the city, outside of the camp, and to find the poor and the marginalized and should be identified with them, not with cultural elites, not trying to keep up with cultural trends, not trying to have influence or to these types of things that come along that the whole world, all the world is seeking after that, the counterculture movement calls the church to live very distinct, very different, and away from those centers. Now, the problems with the countercultural model, more pessimistic than it needs to be. Right? There's a lot of pessimism about everybody and everything that really leads to be very cynical and disengaged. 
This model also tends to demonize business, capital markets, the government, really anything that has power, influence, and money. And we just and demonize those types of work, demonize those types of institutions and things, which isn't fair. This model tends to downplay justification and the power of the atonement in the sense because it, it creates a greater emphasis upon like a shared life, a, communi- a communal life that reflects this alternate way of living. And the result of that then is an unintentional lack of evangelism. Right, where you end up, really all your, your concern is about keeping this community living a distinctive way that you don't spend a lot of time preaching and teaching the gospel and bringing in converts. But you spend all of your time making sure that we're all living that distinct godly life. Then we go above this model. So still feeling like Christians don't have much of a role in changing culture, but the two kingdoms model above this countercultural model emphasizes right, that the culture is good, but the church doesn't have much of a role. Within the two kingdoms model, and this really comes out of the heyday of kind of traditional Lutheranism, this comes out of Luther himself from the Reformation, and it's really this idea that there are two kingdoms in the world. There's the common kingdom and the redemptive kingdom. There is this Christian kingdom on earth, and then there's just the secular worldly kingdom, the common kingdom, and that God is the Lord over both. God is over both. God is working over both equally. He's working within the church. He's working outside of the church. If you work in the church or live in the church, if you don't, God is still king over both, and he's, still, he's working in both and is taking care of both. It places a very high value on Christians in secular vocations, but no emphasis on Christian worldview. It, it's just do your job well. Emphasis on excellence, excellence, working hard, doing these jobs, There's no such, not an emphasis though on doing it from a Christian perspective, and rather it sees actually that a secular, neutral state is exactly what God wants. That's the ideal, is a neutral state, a public square that is not overtly religious. The religion, that is the church. Keep that in the church. In the state, that should be the state. That should be separate, the separation of church and state, the idea that religion doesn't have a role in these things. That's good. Because God is over those things, he is working those things, the church should work on its thing and worry about its life, and those who work in the public sphere will worry about those things. Problems within the two-kingdom model, which we are experiencing here, especially Minnesota has been very influenced by this model, if you think of just the, the power of the Lutheran church historically over shaping kind of Minnesota and our own cultures and things, it gives a lot of credit to common grace, to just general goodness, which is good but more than the Bible does. Because the Bible holds them in tension. All people have been imprinted by God, have given grace by God, yet we repress that right, in ungodliness and we repress the image of God that's been placed in us, the law. This puts more of an emphasis just on the common grace and very little emphasis upon sin. And they don't give Christianity its due for influencing the course of culture, like these ideas of justice. There's a lot of trust that God is going to do justice in the courts and in the government and in the world. But not a lot of credit given to the role of Christianity in shaping those ideas, as if if you removed religion or Christianity from the public sphere, ideas of justice will just bubble up automatically because God is going to do that work. 
well, okay. And it teaches, really, that it's possible to live neutrally in the world, that you can have a neutral sphere or space that's neither anything. And it tends to produce a form of social quietism, which has been very frustrating for many of us in our culture, right, of, I don't, I don't engage, I don't need, to, that's, that's the state's job, that's this world's job, they, the king does these things, the courts do these things, this is, I need to focus on my family, my work, my sphere, my church, I have my kingdom, I'm in my kingdom, that's another kingdom and someone else's role and responsibility. It tends to live, go to that kind of quietism of life and also tends to contribute to a hierarchy of clergy and lay people in this model too, that the clergy get elevated highly as these, the kings of the religious kingdom. You know, they're the leaders there and those who are outside of that kingdom have roles over here, but within the church, the clergy are elevated. And as we're, if we're honest about these models and we look at this, right, we, like you said, all of these views, and, and this is probably you as we were just going through them, if we're honest with us, right, all of us fall in these grids and come out of different traditions that fall into these various grids or have been in a church that are falling into these areas or are in other ones. And the reality of, for Christianity in the world today and in history, right, is that all four of these are right, right? In so many ways, they are right. There is truth, and they are accurate efforts to follow that, live out that gospel narrative in culture. They are good. These models are good. They're not bad. But then we can also say, right, that these models are wrong, <laughs> They are good, but they're also bad. They're, all the models are right, and all the models are wrong. Which is, fits with our experiences of culture, the experience of the church in the world, and in trying to live these faithful lives that demonstrate to Jesus Christ. Now, where does TCC fall onto the, to the grid? Right, It's pretty hard to place us. And our hope and efforts have really been to try to be in the center as much as we can. Because I think really our church is made up of individuals and households who come out of all four of these models and are going to be stronger in some of these models than others. Right? As you were thinking or thinking of this as your household, as your family, right? I mean, it's, we all are going to gravitate to various parts of this and say, yeah, that's what the church should do. That's what it shouldn't do. But really, the hope is, is in that center there where it's called you know, blended insights, there can be something that can hold us together, right? Because like we were talking about before, the reality is the church's experience and witness in our culture has not been one of love and unity. It has been one of judgment and of criticalism and skepticism and hurts. When we talked about that unchristian book George referenced before, right? I mean, the majority of the world, by far, especially non-Christians, look at Christians and say, we are judgmental, we are hypocrites, we hate gay people, um, and look at the church just like, why would I want to have anything to do with that? And a lot of that does, we have to be really honest with, we carry with us, and it, it seems, I don't know if it's more pronounced than outside of the church, but we have an incredible critical spirit and judgment against one another in Christianity. 
Christians judge Christians, right, at such an incredible amount and, hip, and just heap criticism upon them and condemnation upon them that's undeserved. That Luke passage that was read today is a healthy warning, right, that Jesus gives of, look, John the Baptist did this, and you called him a demon. And here I come, and I do the opposite, and you call me a crazy person. Right? Like, what are you looking for? <laughs> right? What do you want the kingdom of God to be like? Because there's the danger that in our expectations of the kingdom, we miss the kingdom. We get so locked in to what we think the kingdom of God is going to look like, should look like, what we need to do, what the church needs to do, what I need to do, that we fail to see what Christ is actually calling us to do, is actually doing for us. It's a real danger for all of us as Christians to create our own visions of kingdoms, our own expectations of kingdoms, and to want those and to put those expectations upon others and especially upon the church and miss. What expectations do we have from God? What expectations do we have from the church, from the kingdom on earth, that have prevented us from participating in God's plans? I think if we're honest, right, a lot of our conflict, a lot of our lack of participation in God's plans and purposes in this world come out of our own expectations of what that should look like, of what God has called us to do, of what God is calling me to do. And since that's not what I'm expecting, I don't participate in what is given to me. We make demands on the kingdom versus feel the demands the kingdom makes upon us to be faithful, to be honest. And that's the good news about Christianity, too. You know, of all of the world religions, Christianity is the only one with a self-correcting mechanism that is constantly bringing it back. No other religion has revivals. No other religions has reforms, reformations. Christianity does. Although the religions have new teachers, new directions, go in different ways, but Christianity constantly is calling its followers back to something, back to the gospel. And it is that gospel that holds together Christians, that brings us back from our camps, that brings us back from our traditions, from our models, from our wherever the extremes are that we ended up, and brings us back to that humble submission to Christ and reminding us, right, of the truth of that gospel story. Just like we talked about last week, you know, so often our stories are too small. We have a very small story, and it's hard for us to see past our own story, that I am the hero, I've got the villains I have to overcome, there's the thing that I'm fighting for and working for, and I get confronted by Scripture, right, that no, I am part of a huge story of creation, that God, Christ is the hero, he's the one who has done the work, he's the one who's done the redemption, and I am a part of it. It enlarges our vision of the story of God for our lives, right? When it's no longer about me, 
It enlarges my story, and it gives me hope, and it gives, it gives me confidence to act boldly, to walk humbly, to do the things that God has called me to do, to pursue what I think God is calling me to do, but to do so with open hands, to submit those things, to give those things, to trust that he is working. It's one of the fundamental problems when, when we hold too tightly to our expectations of the kingdoms or our models. We doubt that God is actually working. Right? We doubt that he's actually working in my life. Oh, I'm still struggling with this sin. I need to do something. God isn't working with me. He's not near me. He's with other people, but he's clearly not with me. He's not working in my family. I don't see this work. I don't, tr- I don't really believe that he's doing this because I had an expectation of this is what that transformation is going to look like. This is what I thought it was going to be for God to redeem me and reconcile me and sanctify me. I expected it to be like this. And I hold demands. I hold God captive to my kingdom expectations in my own life. And so, of course, I will expand that to my family's life. This is what it looks like for Christ to be working in my family. He's not living up to my expectations. Therefore, Christ has abandoned me, is not working with me. And then that flows over into our expectations of the church as well. This is my expectation of what the church should be doing, how the church should be working, what should be going on, and the church doesn't do it. Therefore, God just isn't working. But the reality of that gospel narrative and story is that God is working. The Holy Spirit is real. God is building his kingdom. He is working in my life. He is reconciling and redeeming me. He is working and reconciling and redeeming my family, my neighborhood, my city, through my church, and through other churches. Again, it's that narrative has to get expanded. We have to be able to see past ourselves, to see that God is at work in the body of Christ, and then we have to expand our vision as well as the, of the kingdom of God beyond our particular local models as well, and see how God is working beyond Twin Cities Church as well. The kingdom is expanding. The Spirit is working. It's our job to worship. It's our job, it's our responsibility to respond to the Spirit's work, to seek the kingdom, to not try to impose a kingdom model on the work that Christ is doing, which enlarges our perspective, which brings us into that gospel humility where we have our forms, we have our plans, we try our models, we hold them lightly, and all of them we hold up against the gospel and the whole counsel of Scripture as that self-correcting guide. We have the models, we have our feelings, we have our cultural narratives, we have the things in this world in our life that we feel the church should do, and we bring them to Christ. And we let Christ demand from us, though, and not make demands of him and of the kingdom. We have a faithful, humble living out of the gospel narrative that trusts and seeks, that actually believes and acts like there's this spirit out there. It's almost as if, when you look at the history of the church, it's almost as if these people are being guided by some sort of spirit, (laughs) leading them around to change different ideas and models, to do different things at different times, to step into places where they didn't expect or God to lead them into, 
This is what it means to faithfully, humbly seek the Spirit's leading as a church. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your Spirit's leading. Lord, thank you for the faithful testimony of the church. Lord, for over 2,000 years, you have been building your kingdom, and we are really thankful. We're thankful for your spirit that is uniting us and guiding us and leading us. Lord, we confess to you how often we make demands, how often we grumble and complain and chafe under your leadership and under your guidance, how critical we are at times of the church and of your bride and have failed to be faithful to our own callings and have justified our sinfulness. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and that you have reconciled and redeemed all things and are bringing everything to this glorious conclusion. Lord, which gives us the freedom and the strength to repent and to open our hands and to give you our hopes and our visions, our models and our traditions, and trust that you will lead us. Lord, strengthen us as a local church to trust you and to step into faithfulness and to pursue you. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that's at work in us. May we grow in our knowledge of what that looks like and grow in our faith and trust in you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.